add a bit of sunshine to your home with Easy Living Furniture's Garden Furniture Sale with stunning dining sets, cracking egg chairs and relaxing sun loungers that are in stock and ready for delivery there really is something for everyone and with an extra 10% off sale prices and free delivery over 399 now really is the time to let your garden shine Garden Sale now on Visit Easy Living Furniture Don't miss out Find your local store online at easylivingfurniture.ie Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, September is Heart Health Month, so we thought it would be a great time to discuss some of the things we can do every day to protect yourselves against heart disease, stroke risk and heart attacks. It's something that many people are mindful of, but what does it take to make sure our lifestyles are really keeping our hearts healthy? I'm delighted to be joined by preventative cardiologist at the Blackrock Clinic, Dr. Paddy Barrett, to tell us exactly what we need to do to help our hearts. Paddy, welcome to the show. How's it going? Everything's really good. Thanks so much for having me on. So let, let's get cracking. When should people start caring about their heart health? At what age or is there an age or should we just be conscious of it all the way through our life cycle? Uh, the, the age is now and that's not a facetious answer because it's always now. It doesn't matter what age you are, um, because ultimately when you look at the, the literature and data around heart disease, and when we say heart disease, we're talking about coronary artery disease. This is something that if you live long enough, you're going to develop to a significant amount. Um, we know that 35% of people will die from cardiovascular disease, and it is likely even starting at the earliest uh, stages in our life, even before our teenage years. So really, the answer is always now um, in terms of to think about your cardiovascular health. And how common is heart disease in Ireland? Is it, is it as prevalent as I suppose we're led to believe? Um, yeah, the answer, the answer is yes, it is. It is very common. But I think you, you have to look at this um, backwards in terms of what people will die from and the, the average adult in the developed world, of which Ireland is, is in that category. 35% of people will die from cardiovascular disease. And the, the top three causes of death in, in most of the developed world is going to be cardiovascular disease, cancer and dementia. And we know that there's, there's many factors that are shared between all of those. So if you focus on those factors, you can actually decrease the risk of developing cardiovascular disease, cancer and dementia at an early age. And this is the key point to actually make here. When we talk about prevention of cardiovascular disease or prevention of cancer, even for that matter, a lot of the time it's about delaying the onset at an early age. If you were to live to 200 years of age, even with the best genetics and lifestyle, it's likely that you're actually going to develop significant cardiovascular disease. Because when we look at the, the healthy centenarian population, the people who live to 100 years of age um, and are generally fit and healthy, we find that they don't die from skydiving accidents or their last ascent of K2. They die from the same things as everybody else. The key difference between these individuals is that they get the chronic diseases that we've just spoken about 20 to 25 years later than everybody else. So really the key here is not to prevent coronary disease or cardiovascular disease in its entirety. The, the key here is to create a phase shift as to when you develop the coronary disease. Understanding that everyone who is listening to this right now has already probably built up some coronary disease. And the question is, is at what rate are you going to continue to build it up? So you know, you're really looking to for people to age healthier, to age better, to push the, the time scale at which you may develop this and get it later down the tracks by 10, 15, 20 years or whatever it may be. Correct. 
And, and, and so we, we, we know in terms of the inputs that actually the, the change that the onset uh, are fairly well defined. That this isn't a, a, you know, a black box. There's no huge mysteries in here. Yes, there are certain factors that are, are random or we don't actually understand or that we don't fully appreciate the, the biology of. But the inputs on a probabilistic basis are quite clear. We know that 90% of the risk of coronary disease, certainly at a young age, is defined by about nine factors. And we can probably even call it down to less than that. But those nine factors being whether you smoke or not, have high blood pressure, diabetes, abdominal obesity, whether you drink excess alcohol, whether you're under significant stressors, whether you have appropriate nutrition, whether you're exercising appropriately, and whether your lipids are control controlled. So in, in fact, we can actually set this up in a very structured fashion. People think there's a lot of magic to this. And, and ultimately, it's about looking at someone's cardiovascular health through the lens of those factors and often many others that we add in and asking, are we truly hitting the targets that we need to, to basically decrease the probability of cardiovascular disease developing at a young age? And the key here is actually saying probability. It is absolutely true that you can do absolutely everything correct. You can have perfect genetics and you can still develop coronary disease at a very young age. But the probability of you developing coronary disease at a young age is exceptionally low. So we always have to be playing a game of odds here. And, and that's often where the confusion comes in. Someone's heard of someone who, you know, is a you know, good exerciser, eats well, and has heart disease at a young age, and they say, well, you know, well, what's the point? The answer is, is probability. You always have to stack the probabilities on your side. And talk to me about genetics and how important they are, like, you know, the family history components of, of, of heart disease. And, you know, how important is that? It's, it's, it's really crucial. And we know that there's very strong genetic contributions to cardiovascular disease. But ultimately, when we talk about, say, family history, we're really asking about genetics. But when we ask about family history, there's many social factors that are, are matched into that. If someone is a heavy smoker, say their parents were heavy smokers and they had heart disease at a young age, the, the impact of genetics there is somewhat diluted because you have such a heavy weighting of risk from the smoking. So we always have to be careful to tease that out. It's when someone has heart disease at a young age and their, their parents say were, were non-smokers, that's when we actually begin to be much more concerned about genetics. But the key here is actually recognizing that, yes, family history is very important. Genetics are, are significant contributions to risk. But if you do all the things correct from a lifestyle perspective, you can actually decrease the risk of developing coronary disease by about 50%. So you're having your risk. So even if you have all the odds stacked against you from a genetic perspective, you can make significant progress and, and significantly de-risk yourself over time. Chat to me about the abdominal uh, kind of weight storage or abdominal fat element and, and heart disease risk. Obviously, as a society, Irish people, we're very apple we're very apple-shaped. We store a lot of our weight, men in particular, around that central part of the body. And that, that puts you at an increased risk of, of cardiovascular disease. Yeah. And we know that obesity and overweight has increased in Ireland since the 1980s. It has about doubled since the 1970s, has at least tripled. People haven't changed. Our environment has changed. And the key here is understanding that when we talk about overweight and obesity, there's really two broad categories of where we store fat. One is what's called subcutaneous fat. That's there's love handles on the side. That's the stuff that sits outside of the, the muscular part of your body. And that in general is actually not very contributory to cardiovascular risk.
The other type of fat is what's called visceral fat. And that is the stuff inside your abdominal cavity. That is the fat that is in your major organs like your liver, your pancreas, and your kidneys. That is a very, very dangerous uh, fat storage area. And that is the engine of inflammation that drives a lot of the cardiovascular disease. And this is why when we talk about abdominal obesity, we refer to things like waist circumference rather than weight in total. And some people, for genetic reasons, when they actually store fat, they store it predominantly in their subcutaneous fat. So they don't actually carry a significant amount of risk, but ultimately it will eventually spill over in terms of uh, their visceral fat. And this is why when we look at this concept of thin on the outside or fat on the inside, yeah, this particularly skin, affects the fat, Asian yeah. populations. Yeah, the skinny fat individuals. And so Asian populations, they tend not to be excess in weight above our traditional thresholds, but they have that excess of only visceral fat. And that carries with it a very high risk of all the cardiometabolic diseases that we've talked about. And, you know, obviously people can get that checked through, you know, a smart scales or something like that. And, you know, for that, presumably that's the most accessible way to, to get a, a rough measure on your visceral fat levels. Uh, that's correct. Um, and you can also simply check a, a waist circumference um, uh, around your waist with a, a simple tape measure. Um, the, the reality is, is that most people, even just, just looking in the mirror, will be able to give a gestalt in terms of whether they're carrying excess um, uh, abdominal uh, weight and 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 that is that is the thing that is is probably one of the the best risk markers of this engine of inflammation that again drives not just cardiovascular disease but uh, many cancers. So there's about thirteen or fourteen different ty different types of cancers that are increased risk in those who have obesity. Um, with the exception of smoking, it, uh, obesity is the is the highest preventable causes has the highest preventable causes of cancers, um, and also the the increased risk uh, of abdominal obesity is associated strongly with dementia. So when you're looking at the, the three leading causes of death, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and dementia, there's a very strong relationship uh, with each of those. So targeting, say, abdominal obesity um, is, is crucial to de-risking yourself across all those three domains. Okay. So if anyone is listening in today, the most important thing they, they can do either tonight or tomorrow morning, stand in front of the mirror naked, have a look at where your weight is. And if it's around that central part of the body and that's where you carry your weight, you are at a higher risk of all three things, but particularly obviously heart disease in terms of today's episode. Correct. Chat me, is, are there any other, um, on a societal level then, both in terms of maybe age and, 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 and people or sectors in society who are, who are at a higher risk? of heart disease you know is it men versus women or is there specific profiles within society that we think that are, have a higher risk factor so females have about a 10-year advantage uh, from a cardiovascular disease perspective in terms of the, the, the onset of coronary disease. Um, that that risk-benefit is actually taken away if they go through early menopause. So it's important to recognize that early menopause is an independent risker, risk marker for cardiovascular disease. The, the key here is that what drives cardiovascular risk often are your lifestyle behaviors, and your lifestyle behaviors are often driven by your environment. So the, the, the delta here is driven by if you are... In a, in a lower socioeconomic class, you're much less likely to be able to engage and participate in the, the healthy behaviors that are likely to decrease your cardiovascular risk. We know that in Ireland, just under 20% of the population smoke, um, so one in five people. But if you're in a higher socioeconomic class and you look around, that figure doesn't seem to make sense. And that's because in, in a higher socioeconomic class, that actual figure is much, much less. But if you are unemployed, for example, um, for more than six months, the smoking rates are about greater than 40%. So, you know, this is, this is why 
when we, we actually look at the same figures in terms of obesity and hypertension and early heart disease, the, the environment that you spend your time in is a huge factor in driving your cardiovascular risk. Folks, you're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. That environment factor is fascinating. So we've already told our listeners to go and stand in front of the mirror, have a look at where your weight is. If it's around your belly button and, the, and uh, centrally, you're at a high risk of, of all of these three things. Secondly, now we're looking at the environment that you spend your time in. So it's important that they look at their environment, uh, how they're spending their time and to make their environment healthier and give us some simple tips that they could, they presumably obviously exercise more is going to be one of them and get more daily movements in presumably. Well, I, I think, you know, when, when we look at these things um, and the, the factors we say, they, they tend to come across as, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, do your exercise and watch your nutrition and, you know, focus on your, your actual cognitive health and well-being. The reality is, is they are the main things. When you actually look at the impact of exercise, for example, people broadly need to be exercising more often and actually often at, at higher intensity levels. Um, walking, for example, is fantastic uh, in terms of activity levels, and there is definite relationships between all-cause mortality in terms of dying from anything and walking. But we really need to emphasize activity at, at a much higher level. Um, the, the, the minimum recommendations of 150 minutes per week of moderate activity or 75 for, for vigorous activity um, are the minimum thresholds. And when you actually look at the mortality data in terms of dying from anything, if you're in the top 5% of VO2 max, which is as a fitness uh, measure, compared to those in the lowest 25th percentile, you're, you're five times less likely to die from anything. And there is absolutely nothing in medicine that gives that type of an advantage. So simply, if you were to do one thing, if you were to say, listen, I'm going to get myself into the top 5th percentile um, of VO2 max, the reduction in all-cause mortality, dying from anything, and particularly cardiovascular disease, is huge compared to, to anything else. So I think we, we always need to emphasize the, the, the disproportionate benefit that comes from these things. And just explain for our listeners VO2 max. So VO2 max is basically the, the rate at which you can extract oxygen from your blood. Think of it as an efficiency measure. Um, and so there's there's various different testing modalities that you can use to, to identify this. But you can also use uh, much kind of less sophisticated measures to give a rough estimation as to where you are. Um, smartwatches that uh, people use for fitness tracking, etc., will give a, a rough estimation of it. The, the exact figure may not be correct, but what you want to see when you're training is that it goes up or certainly isn't going down. Um, and you know, when, when you use these figures, these, these, these VO2 max figures when done correctly are a very good indication of the health of your mitochondria. And mitochondria are basically these energy cells um, in, in your muscles and all the different um, cellular structures in your body. And that is when we talk about fitness is, is, is the ability and the efficiency by which you turn the energy that you input into the energy that you actually use for movement in the world. And it's that efficiency, which is highly correlated with a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and dementia. Um, and that's why we, you know, we need to, to, to tailor our training around this. And you know, you touched on it there in terms of you know the smartwatches and the wearables, and you know they play a really important part in helping people to get healthier. And while they may not be as accurate as a lab setting or you know a sports science lab setting or something like that, they're going to give you a really good indication of certain things, such as the VO2 max or you know your ORH or your resting heart rate or something like that. They're you know they're a really good tool to help you stay healthier and get healthier. Well, again, like everything, it's a tool. 
Um, fire is a tool when used inappropriately, it burns down buildings. When used appropriately, it was actually probably one of the most advantageous things that humans ever did in their history. So you always have to recognize what its capabilities are and what its limitations are. I think roughly for, for non-medical grade uh, systems that we use, what we have to rely on is more of a trend and the direction of travel of improvement. If you if you are actually making improvements or not, or if you're actually losing ground. And I think that's where a lot of the, the benefit uh, can be. Certainly there's a gamification element uh, to this um, in terms of achieving certain step counts or making sure that you hit your metrics. Um, and that's that's really useful, but but understand what the limitations are, understand where the, the tool is used most appropriately. What about people who've done damage to their hearts already? Like, is it ever too late to see a benefit or an improvement or a change? And presuming the answer is no, but I'd be fascinated to see what it is. No, well, I mean, there's, there's an awful lot we can do. I mean, a lot of the people that I will work with will already have significant coronary disease, may have had previous heart attacks. And we know that if you continue to focus on those factors that we, we spoke about, you can actually decrease the risk of having a second heart attack or dying from that cardiovascular disease dramatically, much more than we can uh, from, say, even any of the medications we use. In addition to those things, in addition to those 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 fundamental core pillars of, of lifestyle, those four pillars being nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress, you have to then, is there incremental benefits from, say, certain medications? And for a lot of people who have existing heart disease, the answer is yes. We know that with, say, certain statin medications that can actually get your cholesterol levels down below levels of, say, an LDL of 1.4 or, or 1.0, we can actually see regression of plaque. We see significant stabilization of the plaque, and it makes it much more less likely that that plaque will rupture and cause a heart attack. So, so even for people who are starting off their journey with existing heart disease. Um, there's there's a huge amount we can do. And for people who are listening in, who you've motivated to, you know, to start and to get started, and they want to get a screening done or, you know, get their bloods checked or whatever, what's the best way to do that? Presumably it'll be in through their GP and, and take it from there, I would imagine. Yeah, and I think... The first port of call for pretty much any health complaint has to be your your primary care provider or your GP. They are going to be the center point for for everything, and they will be the the quarterback and coordinator for everything. Um, I think you also have to recognize that educating yourself uh, is crucial on this. And the way I phrase this is, you have to treat it like your life depends on it, because it does. And those factors that we get right can mean the difference of having an additive 10 years to your life. And as a percentage of your life, that's a huge percentage of time. And so really, I think it is important that the people do their own uh, research in terms of understanding the core fundamentals, working with their primary care physician to see if there's things that they can optimize and change. Ideally, working with with other individuals as from a coaching perspective to to hit their targets, if even to get more more educated, and then if necessary, in certain kind of higher risk individuals, that they would uh, see someone who has more specialty knowledge. And if they're you know if, if they're doing a Doctor Google on it, which a lot of people tend to do, presumably the the HC will have really good stuff. The Irish Heart Foundation will have really good content online and really reputable content that people can have a look at and begin to learn a bit more. Exactly, and 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 this is the thing: Google, the internet, is a tool. When used wisely, it can be incredibly valuable. Um, and I think when you get more sophisticated about your knowledge, you can expand your net in terms of what you consume. But if you start with, with proper governmental-led organization structures in terms of the HSE, the NHS, the British Heart Foundation, the Irish Cardiac Society, these will be invaluable resources to start the journey in terms of building the, the, the basic vernacular uh, around um, cardiovascular health. And then you can work from there. 
And talk to me around one of the the factors you mentioned there was sleep health. Chat to me about that and the importance of that for your heart health. So sleep and, and cognitive health are, are really kind of core factors to this and probably sit beneath in terms of in terms of the this pyramid of intervention than actually things like nutrition and exercise. The reason being is that if you don't organize your sleep correctly, the likelihood of you being able to participate and engage meaningfully in exercise and appropriate nutrition is significantly reduced. Um, we know we have we have a lot of data that would suggest that that poor sleep is is highly correlated with worse cardiovascular outcomes. We always have to be mindful that these are associational data, not necessarily causative data. Um, we know that if you're sleeping less than you know five, four hours a night, um, your glycemic parameters in terms of the, the, the measures associated with uh, glucose control and diabetes get worse. Um, we know that you're much more likely to make poor food choices. And we all know ourselves after a, a bad night's sleep or getting little sleep, our motivation to exercise is reduced and our motivation to eat um, improper foods, um, kind of high in, in fat and carbohydrates is, is much higher. Everyone is aware of this. So this is the bedrock. And, and, and secondly, and probably more importantly, when your sleep is very poor on a regular basis, your cognitive health, your, your emotional well-being is likely to be reduced significantly. And so, so therefore, not only is are you likely to actually make poor choices, your, your quality in terms of how you feel about yourself um, is, is diminished significantly. And this is the Marcus Aurelius line in terms of the quality of your life is defined by the quality of your thoughts. And if you have poor sleep, the quality of your, quality of your thoughts is likely to be significantly diminished. Oh, I love that. I'm so going to rob that and use that for the future. It's really good. Well, you're, you're, you're robbing it from a, a stoic philosopher from 2000 years ago. You're not robbing it from me. It's brilliant, though. It's really good. Um, if people want to contact you, uh, do you have any online content uh, or, or where, where can they contact you? So the best place is on Twitter um, at Paddy underscore Barrett, or you can check out my Substack feed. If you just uh, go to uh, Paddy Barrett Substack, there's a, a weekly article that goes out that covers all of these topics in lifespan, health span, soul span, and uh, goes into a lot more detail in terms of what we've talked about here today. It's brilliant when we bring experts on in their fields, they come on and they just tell it as it is and they have all the data and the, 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 the stats and the percentages to back it up. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. The content was absolutely fantastic and the way you put it across was superb. Folks, we will be back next week for another Real Health show and in the meantime, keep in touch with me during the week on Instagram. I'm at PT on Instagram or email us. We're at realhealth.independent.ie and we'll see you next week. Slong foe. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.